Hi, thanks for listening into this episode. Today, I had the chance to talk with Christine McCoy. She was the first survivor that I connected with following my own diagnosis. Christine shared her journey with breast cancer as a 31-year-old with two young children. She also talked about her course of treatment, how she was alone when she received the news of her diagnosis, and how she just simply complied with the plan of treatment because she was in shock. Take a listen in. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here with Christine. Christine is a friend of a friend. Um, She actually went to college with my college friend's sister, and Christine was diagnosed with breast cancer the exact same day, but a year earlier than myself. Um, March 15th of, you were what, 2006? 2006, yeah. 2006, yeah. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Melissa. We appreciate you being here. So let's talk a little bit about your story. Um, So how Mm -hmm. old were you when you were diagnosed with cancer? I was 31. 31, okay. Which I believe is the age you were as well. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was exactly 31, so that is, mm-hmm. that's pretty crazy. I'm mm. not sure if I realized that, but, um, I mean, it's been a while. It's been 12 years, so. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, but, so we actually had the opportunity to connect. Uh, you were probably one of the first people that I actually connected to when I was diagnosed, so that was really um the start of our relationship and here we are 12 years later (laughs) still connected so um so 31 uh were you married did you have children what was kind of going on in your life at that time yes so I was I was married for seven years at that point and I had two small children uh Katie and Aaron Katie was four and Aaron was just one oh wow okay and so did you find a lump? Were you going in for mammograms for some reason? I mean, that 31's kind of early. It wasn't right. So, so yeah, it's, mammograms definitely weren't on my on my radar. Um, so I was actually in the shower doing a self breast exam, and I found a lump, and I knew immediately that it felt suspicious. I had never felt anything like that before, and throughout the course of the day, I kept feeling it and imagining that the next time I would feel it, it wouldn't be there and that this was all a bad nightmare and, and that if I was in a different position, I wouldn't be able to find it. But of course I, I kept finding it. Right. And what did it feel like? Uh, it felt very hard, very firm. Kind of like a marble. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Was it, um, was it kind of like the size of a marble? Was it smaller? Was it bigger? I don't remember the exact dimensions, but I remember feeling like about a marble. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So was your, when you found it, was your first thought cancer or did you just kind of, I mean, you said throughout the day, you kind of were like, well, it'll disappear. So 
you know, right. what were your, what, what do you remember thinking? Well, my mother had always had cystic breasts and she had undergone several surgical excisions throughout her life. So I kind of thought that it was going to be something like that, that I needed to, you know, go to a doctor, have evaluated, maybe have a excisional biopsy and that it would just be benign and it would be fine. And this was kind of going to be the beginning of my journey with cystic breasts as my mom's had been. That was my immediate thought. Okay. And at what point did you contact like your gynecologist or whomever to say, "Mm, it's there, it's not going away. What do we do now? Actually that day, um, that day I had, um, called my gynecologist. This was, this was March and I didn't have my annual exam coming up with my gynecologist until I think either the end of April or the beginning of May. And I said, you know, I was in the shower today. I felt a lump and they said, Oh, you're, you know, I said, I'd really like to be seen. And they said, Oh, well, you're only 31. You're, you have no risk factors. You know, we'll just see you at your next appointment. Oh, So I kind of sat with that for about another two or three hours, and then I uh, called my primary doctor, and I was a little cagey about why I wanted to be seen, but I just kind of said, you know, I'm not feeling well. I need to get in and to be seen, and they got me an appointment for the very next day. Okay. So you didn't actually go through your gynecologist to have this done. You went through your primary care physician. Yeah, they they didn't feel that they needed to see me emergently. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's the, sometimes that's the hard part is right when you're 31, you know, and they think that you don't have any risk factors that it's, you know, nothing to worry about. And I was, I was told because I was having my period to wait a week because certainly it would disappear. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So, So what happened once you went to see the primary care physician? So the primary care physician examined me. She felt the exact lump that I found, um, but again said, you know, out of an abundance of caution, we'll send you for a mammogram, but I really don't think that it's anything. And then how soon so, were you seen so for that mammogram? The, the very next day. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> I don't mess around. <laughs> no. Dang. <laughs> I, don't like to, I don't like to have things hanging over my head. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't blame so you. So I... I wanted to either know for sure or have a plan or just kind of put, you know, footsteps in motion and, and get things going. So in, in retrospect, everything really aligned very beautifully because uh, I had contacted a local um, radiology place, kind of has chains all over New York, um, and they fit me right in. And, of course, this was my first mammogram, so I had never experienced it before. So I went in, had the mammogram, and then I was in the waiting room for a really, really long time. And and being that it was my first mammogram, I didn't realize that the fact that it was taking so long was because they were looking at the images, evaluating the images, trying to see if there was anything that needed to be addressed with the images. Right. And uh, and then, you know, they, they called me back and they, they told me, you know, it's extremely suspicious for cancer. Oh, wow. We'd like to, yeah, they said we'd like to do um, a, a biopsy, a core biopsy. And I 
got very upset. You know, I think they said, oh, we'll see you back here in like a week. And I got very upset. And they said, you know what? We'll, we'll fit you in today. Oh, wow. And it was just like this beautiful, like star alignment of the surgeon happened to be on call. The, you know, everything, somebody had canceled an appointment. You know, I, I think the, the people at the radiology place took pity on me and they did the excisional right. biopsy right then and there. Wow. That's really uncommon. It's extremely uncommon. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the steps to get to that point, you know, right. typically it's it's several steps and it can be several weeks for people to right. get in. But, you know, right. Right. yours just kind of happened so fast. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah. just as you said, it kind of happened, you know, the, everything right. kind of aligned and, and things worked out. So right. did they then, so after they did the biopsy, did they tell you then that you had cancer or did they give you, uh, did you have to no. wait? No, they said that they would forward the results to my primary care physician uh, within the week. Okay. And how long did it take? The very next day. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was, I was at work and the, you know, my phone rang and it was the, front desk at my primary care's office and they're like oh we really need to see you and I was like I was busy at work and I was aggravated and I was like really I'm like you know can't this wait like an hour you know I'm gonna be off work soon and they're like no we really think you need to come in and me I'm so focused on the fact that this is gonna take a week to come in I couldn't imagine what they wanted to you know see me about I thought it was just kind of a courtesy call following up and I was I was aggravated that they were interrupting my work day So I drove there with absolutely no expectations of finding out any news whatsoever. Again, you're still kind of thinking this is going to be a cyst or, you know, kind of the same thing that your mom dealt with. Correct. Correct. And they, when I came in, they kind of took me right to a room, which was pretty unusual for this practice. It was a pretty big practice. And you kind of tended to wait you know, maybe 30 minutes in the waiting room past your appointment time. And, you know, they took me right in and everybody was in retrospect, everybody was kind of looking at me with a lot of pity. And my doctor actually came in with tears in her eyes. And she said, you know, the biopsy came back and it is cancer. And I just, I just spiraled. I just, I, I couldn't see straight. The ground was the ground didn't feel steady. I, I felt like I was going to pass out. I couldn't formulate words. It was my world had just collapsed. And unexpected. Totally unexpected. Yes. Like just totally unexpected. Yeah. I mean, wasn't even in the realm of thinking. Um, right. right. So they didn't think to call your husband to maybe have him be there with you. <laughs> I know, you know, it's, it's funny because as soon as she told me the news, they said, we're going to call Brian, which is my husband's name. And, um, I, I wish they had called him, you know, before. And I remember, um, my, so the, the doctor's office, um, was kind of centrally located between my parents who were west of the doctor's office and my, my house, which was kind of east of where the the doctors were located and um so they had called 
Brian, and before I knew it, Brian, my kids, and my parents were all walking through the doctor's office. Wow. And we were all, my husband had, had I guess, called my parents and, and told them the news. And, um, you know, we had, uh, all of a sudden, I was just, I was surrounded by, by staff members who were very encouraging and, you know, trying to come up with a plan and all this. And all of a sudden, you know, my entire family was there, and that was really nice. And your kids were there. Yeah, yeah. How did two? I mean, yeah. they were young. They were, I mean, really very young, young. So I'm sure you know, trying to very young. Yeah, help trying for for them to be able to understand that. I mean, that at that age is pretty I, hard. But I don't think they had any concepts. Okay. And all these years later, um, Katie has now graduated from high school. Erin's um, going into tenth grade. They truthfully have no recollection of that time okay. period. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I always kind of wonder, like, you know, that age, what do you say? You know, what do you do to kind of help right. them to maybe understand some of the things that you might experience or go through? Right. Um, you know, but, and I always think about, you know, kids are so resilient and we sometimes mm. don't give them credit for that. <laughs> um, exactly. But I've I've heard a number of other people that have had younger kids say the same thing where, you know, they don't really recall what, what was right. going on at that point in time. So Right, yeah. right. Um, so kind of looking at, um, I mean, cause this was super unexpected. I mean, obviously your, your mom had right. some concerns related to cysts and things. Is there mm-hmm. a family history of breast cancer? There is not. In fact, um, the only person in both sides of my family that ever had cancer was my dad's great grandfather who was diagnosed with colon cancer at the age of 93 oh, wow. and elected not to do treatment. I mean, <laughs> so I, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was, I, I am the first, okay. I am the first, the first person. And so did they even offer genetic testing or because there was no family history, they were like, we're not, they didn't offer genetic testing. Um, but after I had had my surgery and was into my, you know, recovery process and beyond, I asked for it. And I did, I did have genetic testing done and I, I do not have any of the, the mutations. Okay. Okay. So. All right. Well, what was your course of treatment? So after you had the diagnosis, you talked about, mm-hmm. you know, everybody kind of coming up with a plan. So what was that plan? Right. right. So. I um, I found a, a wonderful surgeon, also kind of serendipitously through um, my husband. Um, I had been recommended for a couple surgeons that um, were more general surgeons, or you know, they did breast surgery but more cosmetic surgery, and it just wasn't it wasn't the right fit. And um, somebody that my my husband's a teacher, and somebody that he had taught. Um, runs the pathology department at the very big state university hospital that's local to us. And he had kind of called her, um, the parent of the student and, uh, and said, you know, my wife is in this situation, you know, we really need somebody good. And she recommended a a very renowned surgeon with excellent credentials, excellent track record. And, um, you know, this is this is a man who has a six month to a year waiting list, and wow. I was in surgery with him within ten days. Holy cow! <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. Things really uh, the happen stars, fast. The stars aligned for me; they really, really did. I would say mm-hmm. so. Wow. 
So did you opt to do, um, so was the cancer just in one side? Was it in both sides? It was just in one side. It was in the left. Okay. And then, so did you opt to do a mastectomy? Did you opt to do a lumpectomy? What, what did you? I kind of was in a very scared state that I was willing to do whatever the doctor said. Mm -hmm. Um, I really wasn't allowing myself to think independently. I kind of went into this state of shock. Um, In fact, recently I talked to another cancer survivor and we both realized that we had the same experience, which was if we laid still enough for the MRI and if we said yes, please to the doctor and were polite to the nursing staff and, you know, tolerated the four times it took them to get an IV for the CAT scan, that everything would be okay. So when he came up with my surgical plan, I just said, okay. And that surgical plan was to, to do a nipple sparing lumpectomy on my left side. Um, a couple of years later, I regretted that choice and looked into getting a bilateral mastectomy with expansion, but it didn't really seem feasible with all the recovery time mm-hmm. involved. Okay. So you did, you went through the lumpectomy and you, at this point, mm-hmm. have left it at that. You haven't gone. Right. Okay. Right. He did, um, he did a lumpectomy and then he did an axillary node dissection and ended up ha- having to take all of my axillary nodes because I think something like 17 out of 23 nodes were involved. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what stage mm-hmm. did that put you at then? Uh, 2B or 3A, depending on which literature you look at. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know it's kind of changed since right. my initial right. diagnosis, but yeah. Um, I was thinking, um, my recollection was that we were the same. Um, I think I was 2A and I thought you were 2B because you had the, right. the nodes involved, uh, yeah. but things right. changed. <laughs> yeah, I've recently read something that, I, I think back in 2006, they used to classify it by um, more than the sentinel node was 2B, but more than half lymph node involvement is now 3A. I, you know, I... Okay. I, I'm not 100 percent sure. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we but get. But yes, at the, at the at the time it was considered too big. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then, were there any recommendations for radiation or chemotherapy? Yes. Yes. In fact, um, as great a surgeon as he was, he didn't really have the greatest bedside manner. Um, he came to see me right when I came. Um, I, you know, I was in recovery, um, got up to my room and I, I was completely zoned out on pain medications. And he said, he said, well, it's cancer. He's like, we're gonna, he's like, you're gonna have to start chemotherapy. Uh, so obviously that conversation didn't really resonate with me at the time. And, um, you know, I was got out of the hospital and okay, now what's the plan? So yes, I, I ended up um, having chemotherapy for, I want to say 12 weeks. Okay. And, or was it 12 sessions? No, it was longer than 12 weeks. Okay. So um, did yeah. you go, did you go like every other week? So the first one I went every, yes, both were every other week. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, every other week. I had four different types of chemotherapy. I had uh, one combination for the first four sessions, 
and another combination for the for the uh, final four sessions. Okay. And then after that, I did radiation. And then after that, <laughs> I um, you know I was thinking I was all all done. Um, went to see my oncologist just for routine blood work, and he said, "Oh, you know, when we tested your." your tumor, you know, you were progesterone positive, you were estrogen positive. He goes, and we did test you for something else called the HER2 gene. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, yeah, he's like, your, your tumor does express the HER2 gene. And, and now we have this new drug called Herceptin right. that we'd like to put you on. So that was another year on top of that. Okay. So you were both were you also ERPR positive? Yes. Yep. All and three. her too. Yep. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So no tamoxifen, just the Herceptin? Not just, but. Uh, no, I did. I did tamoxifen as well. Okay. Okay. So you did, mm -hmm. you did mm -hmm. chemotherapy, radiation, tamoxifen, and Herceptin. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. Really. And so what was the, um, what was the length of time there? I mean, obviously for the, like the tamoxifen and the Herceptin, that's going to take, you know, a number of years. I don't know if you did five or if you did right. 10 or um, what you did for that. But in terms of like the chemo and the radiation, how long was that time frame? So the chemotherapy was from April to August. And then the radiation was September and October. And then in November, I started a year's worth of Herceptin infusions Okay. And then I think I did seven years of tamoxifen. Okay. I, I, I was not having the greatest, um, I was having some side effects from it mm -hmm. and I really didn't want to continue. And my, my doctor was in agreement that, you know, after everything that we had done and I had surpassed the five years that at seven years, he was comfortable with me stopping it. Okay. So I would say of all of those things, what would you say was the most challenging for you in terms of just having to either, you know, take them, receive them, whatever, but also the side effects. What were the, which one was the most challenging the, for you? The chemotherapy, chemotherapy. With, without a doubt, without a doubt. And what did you experience was, with the chemo? Such exhaustion. It, it was, it was just being completely exhausted every minute of the day. Um, just getting your head up off the pillow was a challenge. Um, I, it hurt to walk. It hurt to sit. It hurt. I mean, it was, it was, it was terrible. Yeah. Um, I do have to say my doctor had me on a pretty good uh, regimen of um, medications to take pre-chemotherapy and post-chemotherapy so that I didn't experience the, the nausea that a lot of people experience. Okay. Um, but I experienced nerve pain. I experienced bone pain. Um, just the complete overwhelming exhaustion. Right. It mm -hmm. was... Yeah. What about like the fogginess and the loss of hair? Did you have oh, those as well? Yeah, yes, I was. I was completely bald. <laughs> I didn't have, and you know, it's it's funny um, when people talk about losing their hair through chemotherapy. You just think, oh, you lose the hair on your head, but you lose the hair on your legs, your armpits, your face, your eyelashes. Yeah, everything. I, mean, you, you, I, lo I lost everything. Everything. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, definitely, definitely chemo brain, you know, very foggy. I would, because I was going every two weeks, I, um, I would go for the chemotherapy on Friday. I would kind of be okay until Sunday and then Monday through the following like Wednesday, I would just be completely useless, completely useless. That's a long time. Yeah. 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 It was like 10 out of the 14 days in between that I was just completely useless. Wow. And were you working during that time? No, I was on uh, disability. I was on long-term disability. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I can't imagine, you know, 10 out of 14 days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Being sick and, you know, trying to balance work and, you know, two young kids and husband and, you know, all of that stuff. So, um, right. Yeah. So kind of talking about work, um, as you went through this, you kind of discovered something for yourself that you wanted to take a, I don't know what you did before. Um, but I know that it kind of led you down a different path. Right. So what I did was I, I did, um, like technical writing and work with legal teams for uh, major insurance carriers. So I worked for AIG and I worked for travelers and it was very um, kind of bookish work uh, at a computer, you know, reviewing files, things like that. And I was out of work for about nine months. Uh, I was diagnosed in March of 2006, went back to work, right before Christmas in 2006, so December of 2006. And, um, you know, I was just kind of going through the motions at work, uh, had absolutely no joy in it, um, thought the cases were silly and stupid and, you know, could no longer see the the passion that people were bringing to, to work and could not relate to that. Um, you know, some of the cases that we saw just seemed ridiculous and, <laughs> and mind numbing. Um, gives you a different perspective. Yeah. yeah. Just as an example, I would, I would sometimes give lectures to the claims team about policy interpretation and I actually gave a 45-minute lecture on the difference between an insured and the insured. <laughs> so it was pretty nut- mind-numbing work. Yeah. And yeah. not fulfilling. And I ha- yeah. Very unfulfilling. Um, just kind of felt like I was pushing papers around. And, you know, I thought to myself, I, I kind of need to to do something else. I can't, I can't even imagine doing this for the rest of my life. And, um, that career was, was to become a registered nurse. That's, that was my, my passion. That's what I wanted to do. And was it anything that had to do with your experience through cancer that led you? It definitely was. Um, it definitely was. I, from the very first time that I went to the radiology department to have the mammogram to every time I went for chemo, the kindness of the nurses and the difference that they made in my experience was tantamount. Um, I always felt um, cared for 
and um, led through my journey and with just such positive reinforcement. Um, you know, of course I appreciated my surgeon. I appreciated my oncologist, but they weren't the ones that were with me day to day. They weren't the ones that were, you know, hooking me up to the IVs and talking me through it and giving me the tips and giving me the tricks and, you know, just giving me that emotional support. Sometimes wiping our tears, sometimes holding our hands and sometimes just hugging us as well. Right. Right. I had a lot of hugs. Yeah. A lot of hugs. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Mhm. Mhm. Wow. Yeah, there was one particular nurse practitioner at my surgeon's office who um really kind of kind of took to me. And um years later I still keep in touch with her and she says to me she says Christine she's like all of our hearts just sank when we saw, you know, that you were going to be coming to see, you know, this particular surgeon, you know, just on paper, you know, you see a 31-year-old uh, female, you know, mother of two. She goes, our hearts just all broke. And she said, and we all, you know, decided we were going to band together and, and help you through this. Oh, and wow. she was, she was amazing. She's my mentor to this day. Yeah. Well, that's great. And so mm. now you're in a position to be able to help other people. And so do you come in contact right. with cancer survivors, cancer patients? <laughs> So when I first became a a nurse, um, I graduated from nursing school in 2010. Um, I wanted to completely immerse myself in the oncology world. And I worked on an oncology floor. And it actually proved to be very difficult and not kind of what I had planned. I thought I would feel empowered by helping these people. And all I felt was uh, survivor's guilt. Uh, Yeah. It's real. How, it's very real. How was I in a position to be standing here at their bedside and these people are so sick? Because, you know, when you're when you're hospitalized for a complication relating to cancer, you're you're very ill. You know, you're having electrolyte imbalances, you're having, you know, organ damage, you know, you're you're a very, very sick patient. And here I am walking around laughing with the other nurses, you know, able-bodied doing my thing. And these people are, are in the bed and sometimes aren't even able to do the most basic tasks for themselves. And I felt tremendous survivor's guilt to the point that after a year of doing it, um, my manager actually said, I, I think, you should consider moving on from this position because you're too emotionally attached and you're, yeah. 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 Well, and I mean, it's, unless somebody has been there and experienced that survivor's guilt, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it seems like something that, you know, people kind of have a hard time understanding, but it really is so real. And, you know, to be, um, I mean, I think your heart, obviously was in the right place and you, you want to help other people and, but recognizing that, you know, for you, maybe it wasn't an emotionally good thing. And, you know, that can always get in the way of being helpful sometimes, um, because Mm -hmm. we're too, too emotionally involved in it. So, um, but you're still, you know, you're still out there and you're helping other people. It just may, you know, not necessarily be that that close to Population. the oncology world. Yeah. Correct. For sure. Correct. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've always been kind of, you know, excited about that. I initially wanted to go to school to be a nurse. Um, didn't do that, 
but I <laughs> couldn't deal with, you know, bodily fluids <laughs> that could have just creep me uh, out. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I, I certainly appreciate, um, because I know that my nurses were so important and I have no doubt that, you know, just knowing you, um, that you're, you're helping other people in their time of need. So, um, so one last thing for you, I, um, you kind of talked about many different things and things that you learned and kind of, you know, things that you might have done differently in retrospect. Um, is there any piece of advice that you would offer to somebody that is newly diagnosed or, um, you know, any, any tip that you have? Hmm. I would say find a friend who can keep on top of all of your medical stuff and kind of be your um, historian, let's just say. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had a very good friend um, who took it upon herself to get folders, accordion folders, and just kind of managed every piece of paperwork. Um, now, again, this was 13 years ago, so um, the internet, you know, wasn't as prevalent and, and sophisticated, so I assume now you could probably do this all with, you know, different folders and Microsoft Word and things like that. But as you're going through it, you're, you're so... F- you're like this choo-choo train that's just keeping going, keeping going, keeping going, keeping going, and you're just putting one foot one foot in front of the other. I think if you have a good friend or a family member or just anybody that you can rely on to help organize all that stuff, because it it does become a very important piece of your medical history. Um, you know, I'm still asked about it to this day, 13 years later. It's a, it's a it's one of the most relevant pieces of my my medical history and my social history. Um, People constantly ask what my treatment was, what was this, what was that. And even though you feel like you're in it and you will never forget it, you do. And and as you're going from surgeon to medical oncologist to radiation oncologist to plastic surgeon, they don't always communicate with each other. So you need to have the, you know, the surgical report from this one and the radiology report from this one. And having my friend do that for me as an outside objective party who could go through these documents without emotion was extremely helpful. Yeah. And that's a great tip. And I would agree with Mm. that. I think that that's huge. And especially Mm -hmm. if you go for a second opinion or even a third opinion, having that information handy is really important and helpful. Right, right. And in fact, just this past year, I ended up having uh, a revision and having all that information 13 years later was extremely helpful to, to doing the plan for my revision. Right. So, yeah. Great. Well, that's a great, great piece of advice for sure. So I'd like to thank you um, for being a part of the podcast. Um, And I know that I've told you before, and it's been a number of years, but, you know, just kind of thank you again for being that person that I was able to reach out and talk to, um, you know, when I didn't have anybody, it was, that was hugely important for me. So I'm getting a little emotional. (laughs) Aw, and conversely, it was very important for me too, because that was kind of when I realized that my experience didn't have to just be my experience. It could be an experience that I use to help others. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And you did. So thank you. Aw, you're welcome. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. And um, so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.